Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 28, The Color Line, Part 7. Last time we finished up our little two-parter on the Avenue Church in World War II. Mostly I shared stories, stories of Avenue missionaries and soldiers who showed the world that a conscientious objector is not a coward. But in this episode, we're going to switch gears and not follow up on the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. That's going to be a couple episodes from now. Instead, we're going to return to our long-running series of episodes on the color line. Yay! Now, it's been a year since our last episode on the color line. And last time we visited the color line, we left you back around 1930, so we have some catching up to do. In that episode, we talked about Louis Sheaf's final departure from the church. He left and came back and left again. Uh, And we also talked about John W. Mann's departure from the church, and we also talked about James K. Humphrey's departure from the church. And wow, that's kind of depressing. I promise no one will leave the church in this episode, but a couple of people will die. So I guess that's better. And let's move on. A simple article appeared in a Mennonite magazine after the war. It was a practical number. One of those seven things you can do to do better pieces, you know, like BuzzFeed before BuzzFeed. Now it opened with a question, a question that maybe BuzzFeed wouldn't ask. And that question was, What can we do to win the Negro of America to Christ? Okay, what followed were 10 tips. Here are some of the author's more salient points. Number two, treat them as friends and equals. Never show a patronizing or better-than-thou attitude. Number three, do not feel that they must attend only a church established for their own race. Instead, invite them to your church. Number nine, Allow no discrimination in church-administered institutions. As much as possible, seek to influence other organizations toward equality. Support only such as show no partiality. Right. So only support those organizations that don't show partiality, I guess is another way of putting that. And finally, number 10, remember that the Church of Jesus Christ must lead the way in racial understanding. If the church fails... The task will not be done. Ungodly ideologies will win their loyalty and their souls will be lost. Now, that was a remarkable bit of foresight on behalf of that group of Mennonites, though it is important to keep in mind that almost all Mennonite congregations in America were in a straight line that stretched from eastern Pennsylvania to Kansas. There were less than 300 black Mennonites in the United States at the time, And they were administratively classified as part of, quote, missions among different peoples, end quote. Okay, so Avenus weren't the only ones struggling with the color line. They weren't the only ones agonizing over how to marry their ideals with the practical reality of racism in America. Every sizable denomination had two options, it seemed. You either split in half, like the Baptists, like the Methodists, like the Presbyterians did, or you lived with the civil unrest among your membership, like the Mennonites, the Catholics, and the Adventists did. 
Now, as we have seen over the past six color line episodes, I think it's been clear that it's impossible to understand race relations in the Adventist church by telling a single story. It's tempting. I understand it's tempting to say, well, all those church leaders were racist and you know wanted to keep black Adventists down and all this kind of stuff. You know, and it's it's complicated. It's complicated. We simply cannot say that the Adventist leaders who defended the color line were acting out of a naked sense of racism. It's not a story of pure malice, a conspiracy against color. If it is those things, then it is also a story of good intentions, of promises made, but also promises broken and sometimes kept. It's a story of agony, agony to reconcile ideals to the practical considerations of Jim Crow, agony in wanting to help black Adventists, but also having to climb over, and by this I mean church leaders, having to climb over their own unnamed, unseen prejudices, you know, things that they never had to confront and name before, and suddenly they're there. Agony in wanting the church to live up to this one new humanity that Paul talked about and treat black people as equals in Christ, but also, also, fearing the independent development of black culture with its exuberant preaching and social concern and its strong personal networks that seem to transcend denominational loyalty. We saw that with Louis Sheaf, where he was connected to a larger black community in Washington, D.C. that was outside of the church. It was trans-denominational, and that worried church leaders, right, about where his true loyalties were. I guess what I'm saying is, We can't just tell this story as if it's a story of good versus evil. It's just not that simple. Oh, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of evil in this story. But it's just, it can't simply be said that it's a story of good versus evil. There's plenty of moral lessons in here. There's plenty of things that we should all be learning from in here. There's plenty of human brokenness in here. But a single story cannot do justice to history. There was an expectation that the church had the moral duty to break the color line. If not the church, then who? Then what? That Mennonite author I just quoted, he had said, after all, that, quote, the church of Jesus Christ must lead the way in racial understanding, end quote. The black intellectual, W.E.B. Du Bois, began an article by asking, will the church of tomorrow solve the problem of the color line? The church seemed to be the one institution with enough moral power to transform culture and force the government to end segregation where it existed by law. Now, if people expected their churches to settle this problem, if that's where a good number of people were looking for this problem to begin unraveling, well, Du Bois clearly saw the foolishness of that hope. Rather than break the color line, he wrote, the church will, and I quote, as long as possible and wherever possible, avoid them, end quote. Du Bois saw the church not as the great hope to end Jim Crowism, not as the great hope to break the color line, but as part of the problem, but as part of the problem, the church, he believed, lacked the moral courage 
Hmm. What would Du Bois say if he heard Frank Peterson? Peterson was the leader of the Negro Department, later rebranded the Colored Department of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he was called in to deal with a public relations nightmare that threatened to blow up in the church's face. One of many, by the way, when it came to race. And there, on the front page of the San Francisco Examiner, were two black Adventist parents holding up a rejection letter their 13-year-old daughter, Erica Scott, received when she applied to attend Mount Vernon Academy in Ohio. The Scott family said, Our fathers had to take this, but we don't want to take it. And so, they showed up at the general conference session to take their case to the delegates. And that's when Frank Peterson was called in to manage the situation. Now, what Peterson admitted that there was a color line in the church, he also added that this, uh, this, this little addendum here about the church's racial policy, he said, quote, I don't call it segregation. It is the best program for the advancement of our cause among colored people, end quote. He explained proudly that the church had six black conferences run by black leaders. It is the best plan, he said. Quote, a conference of our own people will attract our own people more than will an integrated conference, end quote. Now, the Scott family, parents of Erica Scott, didn't think it was the best plan, apparently. Some of our ministers, Erica's dad said, even tell us that there is a colored and white heaven. One even said he would like to come over to our side and listen to us sing. Erica's mom agreed, but like Black Avenus had had to do for generations, she was careful to make her loyalties clear. Quote, we are not about to leave the church. We were born in it. We believe in it, but we believe it is wrong in this matter. End quote. At a glance, it seems as if Black Adventists were divided as to what the best plan was. Peterson insisted that the church's color line could help grant blacks independence in their own sphere. On the other hand, the Scott family wanted the color line to come down so that they could send their kid to whatever Adventist school they wanted to. Frank Peterson and the Scott family represented the tensions in black Adventism. Do we fight for equality now? Or do we wait for it to come by more peaceful means later? That was a fundamental question, a difficult question, and Black Avenus divided over it. Peterson's point was that Black Avenus could get much further by waiting, by just adapting to the colored line. And Peterson did get further. While the Scott family couldn't get their daughter into high school, into an Avenus high school, Peterson was the first Black Adventist to become a vice president of the General Conference. But younger black ministers were saying, progress at what cost? Progress at the cost of maintaining the color line. And so, black Adventists were caught in a trap. Those who had insisted on dismantling the color line in the church had been so stiffly resisted that some of them, like Louis Sheaf, Horace Manns, Arnold Bontemps, and J.K. Humphrey, finally just gave up and left the church. And this set a precedent where white believers thought, hmm, Black Adventists who complained about the color line all eventually abandoned the Great Advent Movement, so why should we listen to their complaints? And this is why Black Adventists who did complain were, were usually very, very careful to assert their loyalty to the cause. This meant that no matter how much the church's racial policy hurts, you are better off keeping your mouth shut and seeing what you can gain by playing by the rules. 
And this came at a cost, didn't it? Calvin Rock talks about a time he sat down with a veteran evangelist in his home. This evangelist was known for his optimistic, exuberant, energetic preaching. Never said a word about the race question in his sermons. But when Rock was in his home, that old soldier pulled out two boxes filled with newspaper clippings of blacks being stoned, hanged, beaten. And Calvin Rock was shocked. I mean, this wasn't this evangelist guy's reputation. He wasn't a troublemaker. He didn't dwell on these things. He was just all about Jesus and preaching Jesus. He never suspected that this evangelist had felt the pain of these things so deeply. He never let it show in his public ministry. And if I may, as an observer of of this account of things, it makes me wonder if this evangelist's way of coping with the pain, with the agony that the church's racial problem caused him, that the country's racial problem caused him, that he coped with it by collecting these headlines, by collecting these newspaper clippings and storing them in a box as a way of saying, this stuff hurts. I got I to put it in this box and hide it and get back out there and do my job. I mean, imagine living your life that way, keeping all of that hurt in a box underneath your bed. And so you had this confusing reality, just bizarre twilight zone reality where some black Adventists supported the separate but equal policy, even though they secretly wanted full equality and integration. Right? That was, that was what they wanted. They just didn't think they could get it. So, since we can't get full equality and integration, we'll take separate but equal, because at least that gives us some autonomy in our sphere. So you had that. You also had white Adventists who opposed the separate but equal policy on the grounds of wanting equality, but who secretly had no intention of ever helping to elect a black conference president, okay? Because when there was, before there was, there were, there were black conferences, uh, and, and, you know, before there was a Negro department, it's not like black people got ahead. It's not like when there was, quote-unquote, integration, before separate but equal. It's not like they were getting ahead, right? It's not like they were going anywhere. And so sometimes when the white brethren, you know, they oppose separate but equal, says the Bible wants us all to be one, what that sounded like was a return to like 1895, was a return to 1900, was a return to a time when black people were in even more pain because they, they were part of the integrated church, in name at least, but not part of the integrated resources or attention that the church lavished on, uh, on their white churches and institutions. They were still excluded. So it was a trap. It was a trap that neither side could emerge from because neither side could sit down at a table, speak up about what they really want and how they really feel, and expect meaningful progress. Neither side. And so it, it, it's just this awkward dance that transpired that just caused pain to everybody on both sides of the table. Whenever black believers had spoken up, they'd be shut down or just as likely ignored 
They got close in 1929 where a resolution was adopted by the General Conference Committee accepting that the church needed something like an Oakwood, but in the north. And every union except those in the south needed a, a black man as a secretary in the union to represent the black churches in that territory. Oh, they even had the idea, we want colored conferences as well. Well, the, the general conference committee accepted in principle all of those requests, well, except for the colored conferences. In fact, when Frank Peterson was elected head of the church's Negro department in 1930, he was quietly told never to ask for that one again. Of course, just because the church officially approved these items doesn't mean, you know, they actually had to do much about them. George Peters, who took Frank Peterson's seat as head of the church's uh, colored department, it was renamed uh, in between their terms, um, he, he lamented that little had been done to implement the 1929 resolution. Twelve years later, there was still no school like Oakwood in the North. There were still no black union secretaries to represent the voices of 15,000 black Adventists. 15,000 black Adventists. They didn't have anybody at the union level, as the church had agreed to 12 years before. And during that time, black Adventists had to tell generations of their children that they couldn't, they couldn't attend the vast majority of their own denomination schools, even though they paid tithe like everyone else. During that time, Black Adventists had to explain why James H. Howard, that eloquent elder responsible for planting Adventism among the black people of Washington, D.C., why he would be sent home from the Washington Sanitarium even as he is dying of cancer. When those kids ask their parents, why do you stay in a church that treats you like that? What do you tell them? What do you tell them? Frank Peterson called this experience, that of uh, Howard being sent home from the Washington Sanitarium, a slap by the Washington Sanitarium. Writing to the General Conference, he said, quote, If you can, imagine yourself being colored and teaching to 12 million people, 250,000 of whom live in the vicinity of the Washington Sanitarium, the truths that make Seventh-day Adventists what they are. And then you have a general medical institution that refuses hospitalization to any one of your group. Then you will all have only an imaginary idea of the embarrassment that will come to us if the unchristlike attitude of this institution is allowed to go on. End quote. Do you catch the pain in his appeal? How can we go around urging our fellow brothers and sisters to join the Seventh-day Adventist church that we have the truth as it is in Jesus, that we are a remnant people raised up for such a time as this, that Jesus is coming soon and we need to be ready. And by the way, join our church, but don't expect to go to our schools. Don't expect our hospitals to admit you. Can you imagine how hard it is to preach that sermon? to give that Bible study. Can you imagine how heartbreaking it is to see somebody you're studying the Bible with start getting excited about these truths? Their face is gleaming on the day of their baptism. And then they come up to you and say, Pastor, I was thinking of sending my boy or girl to 
to such and such school. And you imagine having to tell them, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This policy put those black elders, those black pastors in just an impossible position of having to defend the church that they didn't agree with on these issues. Now, the, the irony of the, was that the Washington Sanitarium had only recently tightened its policy concerning black Adventist patients. Right? Things have been getting a little bit better through the 20s and early 30s for black Adventists, but they tightened that policy. Peterson himself had been a patient there some, some time back, and he demanded when finding out that they had tightened their policy, they said, hey, we, we only want to let black Adventists, not just black people, we only want to let black Adventists in in exceptional circumstances, right? In an emergency circumstance. Well, Peterson demanded that the hospital change its policy back to what it had been in the past, and the hospital refused. They gave two reasons. First, there weren't enough black Adventist patients to make it worth the expense of setting up a separate space for them, because of course they, you know, black patients couldn't be couldn't be put in rooms near white patients, right? I mean, obviously. Not when Peterson was there, he had been put in the basement. So at James Howard, that's where they put the black patients. And the second reason the hospital gave was that a large number of friends tended to visit black patients. And this, well, it's just better to to quote the record here, okay? The presence of these friends, quote, in and about the institution is highly likely to cause the management much embarrassment where other patients are concerned, end quote. Now, this was all... What's a nice way to put it? Let's go with the word nonsense. The sanitarium was probably correct that there weren't enough black Adventists in the area to justify the expense of setting up a new wing to the hospital or, or, or a ward. But that's also because the sanitarium chose to limit access to only black Adventists, okay? There were, uh, Peterson was right. There were 250,000 black people in Washington, D.C., more than enough if you wanted to open the doors to all of them, more than enough to, to uh, justify the expense. And who knows? I mean, even if you just kept it open to black Adventists, knowing that there was a single hospital within hundreds of miles that would accept them might induce more black Adventists to move to the area, right? And then you might have more patients. Now, as for the second reason, the whole thing that uh, the black patients end up bringing in more visitors, and this is going to offend the white patients and their families. Um, mm-hmm. this, is, this is even more puzzling because every good hospital in the D.C. area, as Frank Peterson said, already admitted black patients. It's not like the Washington Sanitarium was sticking its neck out here. In fact, it was one of the last hospitals in the region to, to admit black patients. As Arna Bontemps had said, Jim Crow has steadily spread within the denomination. George Peters was saying the same thing. In every area, Adventism was advancing from victory to victory. The missionaries were going out. The schools were being built. The hospitals were being planted. The membership was increasing. Every, in every area, Adventism was doing superbly. It was invincible. 
in every area except this one. In this area, Adventism was going backwards. Why then would people like Frank Peterson stay in the church? Math, that's why. For Frank Peterson, all of the good Adventism was accomplishing and all of the truth it stood for outweighed the bad, even if the bad was pretty bad. And that's why he, and no doubt many others, served and sacrificed and stayed, despite what some black leaders called the church's policy of evasion on questions of race. Now that evasion endured with no signs of letting up. Even as the field of promises made in 1929 became overgrown and unkept, that evasion endured. Even as black Adventists endured slap after slap after slap from church institutions. But one more slap remained until the clouds finally began breaking. Lucy Bayard had to die. Now, Lucy was baptized in 1902, made her home in the Jamaica neighborhood of Queens, and for 40 years, she was a joyful, loyal Seventh-day Adventist. But then she got sick, and her husband and pastor arranged for her to go to the Washington Sanitarium. Lucy Bayard was so beloved that her church agreed to pay her share of the medical bill. It's fantastic. The sanitarium's business manager said, Great, we look forward to seeing you on September 21. So the Bayards took the train down to the nation's capital, and oh boy, did that business manager have a surprise when he greeted them at the front door. Lucy Bayard was a little darker than he expected, and he didn't think it was a tan. Seriously, I just, I mean, how did, how does the hospital's business manager screw this up so badly? I mean, sure, Queens at that time was about 2% black. It's about 20% black today. So he probably could have safely assumed that she was white, right? Or, or at least not black. But she went to the Bethel Church, which was black and, and a pretty well-known church. And her pastor was a pretty well-known black pastor who held some high positions at the Union, was known around the D.C. area, and, you know, when all is said and done, maybe you should ask. Maybe you should ask. Instead of making this poor woman, this poor sick woman, get on a train coming down there. What a mess. Now, what happened next was and is a little bit confusing. The medical director, Dr. Robert Hare, put it pretty clearly. Lucy Bayard was given two options, either a private room, by which he meant the basement, uh, and then a doctor would be down when their shift was over. Or else she can go to the Freedmen's Hospital across town. Now, after Hare finished his rounds, he was surprised to discover, apparently, that Lucy Bayard had chosen to go to the Freedmen's Hospital. But, hey, you know, it's her choice. It gave her an option. Lucy's husband, James Bayard, tells a slightly different story. James says that he was told that a mistake had been made. And that it was against the law in the state of Maryland for them to be admitted as patients Instead, this hospital employee, maybe the business manager, uh, said that he would call a taxi that would take them both to the Freedmen's Hospital. Great. And that's where Lucy Bayard finally passed away a month later. Her union newspaper noted her passing as if she had died in her sleep at home. There wasn't a hint of the drama that had already begun blazing through the Adventist church. Now, the Washington Sanitarium didn't kill Lucy Bayard. They barely had anything to do with her final illness and death. And 
That's kind of the point, isn't it? News spread like wildfire that the Avenus hospital in town had turned away one of their own. And as Doug Morgan points out, the precise details were lost with each retelling of the story, right? Is it is it is the a tale passed from Avenus to Avenus to Avenus? Uh, you know, the story changed it's like the telephone game. Uh, I heard she died on the front porch of the sanitarium. I heard she died in the taxi on the way to the Freedmen's Hospital. You know, stuff like that. Now, a local church, the Ephesus Church in D.C., was ablaze with righteous indignation, even while Lucy Byard still lay dying at the Freedmen's Hospital. Right? It wasn't that she died. It was that she was rejected. William Gordon Turner, one of the 16 vice presidents of the General Conference and something of a professional administrator, he was selected to calm the church down. He showed up on Sabbath, ready to preach, with what must have been the worst possible text in the Bible he could have chosen. 1 Peter 4.12, which reads in the King James, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. End quote. James Montgomery, member of the church, and apparently a real quick thinker, rose to his feet as soon as the sermon was done, and instead of helping to, to end the service with song, he got up and said, Think it not strange? Yes, I think it is very strange that there is an Avenus college nearby to which I cannot send my children. Yes, I think it is strange, a denominational cafeteria in which I cannot be served. And now this incident, I think it mighty strange. To the believers at Ephesus, that tone-deaf sermon was emblematic of church leaders' general tone-deafness as a whole. Now, in the end, it wasn't just the Lucy Byard incident that led to real change. It was a long string of things that culminated in that incident. It was the last straw. It was the fact that the, the, the press caught wind of it. It was that William Turner's sermon at the Ephesus Church was a flamethrower, not a fire extinguisher. Doug Morgan notes, quote, The time for change in Adventism came in 1943 because the Bayard incident dramatized a long-standing pattern of abuse and failure in a way that exposed the status quo as intolerable, end quote. Now, it was intolerable, but it had been intolerable for a while now. The Lucy Byard incident wasn't too dissimilar from the James Howard incident. Both were terminal patients. Both were upstanding black Adventists in their communities. Both were turned away at their moment of need. Now, if you want to quibble, you could say that Howard, after he was turned away, was, was eventually brought back to the hospital at the last moment so that at least he died within its fortified walls. But his death could have been a catalyst for change, just as likely as Lucy Byard's, if it had come at a different time and had gotten the, the public attention that her death did. As it was, not even the secretary for the color department, Frank Peterson, again, not even he had known of the circumstances of Howard's death until eight months later. And he only heard it from an elder in Howard's church. Now, Peterson was not the type to cause trouble by feeding that news to the press. Could have. Could have caused a big stir. Everything, as it turned out, was contained neatly in the Avenist house. Not so with Lucy Byard. The fact that the Washington Sanitarium had to call the Freedmen's Hospital and, and announce that she was on her way over and apprise them of the situation meant that people at, at Freedmen's were in the loop. 
and they had no qualms about protecting the Adventist church's dignity. Now, we don't know exactly how the information got out to the newspapers and all that, but, you know, if I was going to pick one location, that's probably where I would look. Because I guess if I were a doctor or a nurse or some staff member at Freedman's, I'd say this is a really strange thing. The Adventist hospital in town turned away one of their own members? And if I knew somebody who was a writer for a newspaper, I'd say, hey, did you hear about this? What incentive would they have to protect the Adventist name? But above all, change came because a group of black Adventists stood upon a pile of broken promises and best intentions and organized themselves to be heard, and they would be heard. We'll talk about it next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.